I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Stephen Landsberg, Ph.D., author of Can You Outsmart an Economist? 100-plus puzzles to train your brain. He's a professor of economics, and uh, Stephen says, in our world of fake news and splashy sound bites, um, Stephen teaches uh, the curious how to look behind the headlines and statistics and think critically about economic and other problems. He's found that readers often learn better and enjoy themselves much more when lessons in intimidating topics are packaged as puzzles. Uh, Dr. Landsberg is a professor of econo- a professor of economics at the University of Rochester, isn't afraid of offending to get his point across. He's the author of More Sex is Safer Sex, The Big Question, and the best-selling The Armchair Economist. He's featured in Forbes, Slate, The Wall Street Journal, and many more. Uh, publications. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, can you outsmart an economist? I don't think I can. Economy always, uh, economists, economy, uh, those types of topics associated with economists always scare me. So this is like a really interesting book. Very clever. Uh, let's just talk about, okay, what can we learn from your book? You say if you can solve the puzzles in this book, uh, you'll learn a lot about economics interpreting statistics, and maybe a little bit about math, physics, and philosophy, and also have a lot of fun. So let's start with that. How can we do that? What, what, what well, are we going to be? Yeah, go ahead. It's, it's all about looking beyond the obvious when you're, and, uh, you know, you talk about the intimidating subjects in economics, and you're probably thinking about financial markets and international trade and uh, budget deficits and so on. But economics is so much more than that. Economics is about trying to understand human behavior through a lens of, I'll call it respect. Uh, you look at other people behaving in ways that seem a little strange, a little hard to explain. It's always so easy to say, well, they're not thinking, they're not rational, they have not, uh, they're, they're, just, they're just not smart. Uh, whereas the, the mission of economics, as I see it, is to look at other people's behavior and say, if they're doing something that's important to them, they've probably thought about it harder than you have, and uh, they may have good reasons for what they're doing that you don't see. And it is worth uh, looking at their behavior through uh, an empathetic lens where you say they probably are trying to accomplish something, try to figure out what they're trying to accomplish, and then that strange behavior starts to to, to make a little more sense. Uh, okay, well, let's look at a great example. I want to look at an example of that. That's a good explanation. But uh, as I always say, let's put a face on it. And I went to your blog, and you were talking about walls versus walls, because that's a good topic. We're talk- That's economics. We're talking about President Trump wanting to invest $5 billion plus in a wall. Uh, that's economics. That's also political. Um Talk about it. Talk to us about actually what was on the blog, because I think that's really interesting. That really gives us insight into how we can view economics in a different way. That is economics, and it's also political. And I, I, I think I want to preface this by saying that most of what you'll find in this book is not political. But, uh, uh, you know, it, the whole point is to understand everything better, including politics. And in this case, uh, uh, I, I was just focused, uh, the blog post you're talking about was just focused on a very specific thing uh, where uh, I forget whether it was President Trump or one of his defenders suggested that building a wall between the United States and Mexico 
is no different in principle than former President Obama building a wall around his house, where apparently he has put some kind of a wall or a wall-like thing around his house to keep intruders out. Uh, all I pointed out in the blog post is that uh, it's it's a very imperfect analogy because uh, uh, President Obama is putting up a wall to keep people out of his own house, whereas President Trump is putting up a wall to keep people out of my house. Uh, if I want to invite a friend from Mexico over to come visit me or to come work for me or to come uh, rent a room from me, uh, or to work with me, or to, uh, you know, any of the many reasons why I might want to have a visitor from from Mexico uh, come visit me, this wall is going to make it harder, not easier. Uh, and so now that by itself is certainly not an argument for or against the wall. That doesn't prove anything about whether this is good or bad policy. But I'm focusing on the fact that the analogy is a really bad one. Um, Bill, Building a wall to keep people out of your own house and building a wall to keep people out of other people's houses are very different projects. Might be a good project, might be a bad one, but but um, I, I really want to argue that we should stay away from extremely bad analogies if we want to understand things better. Okay, and, and we want to understand things better. Let's talk about it because you also, uh, on your blog, in relation to the wall, talk about the economics of it the, and you you Starting with, you say, let's stipulate that the border wall is stupid. The border wall would cost about $5 billion. And it's stupid for that reason because it's too expensive and we don't want to spend that. We don't have that money or don't want to spend that money here. Um, so, but then you go on to show, because uh, this is a great example, I think, um, in terms of uh, looking at Perhaps not the obvious, but thinking this thing through, how, what's the context of that $5 billion as you discuss it on well, the Well, $5 billion is, is roughly what we spend on um, the National Endowments for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Um, uh, some people think that those are uh, very good investments. Some people think that they're not. Uh, I am inclined to the view, uh, and again, this gets into politics, which is not the subject of the book, yes. but um, I, I am skeptical that that's a terribly good use of, uh, of government funds. Um, and uh, I think it is uh, useful if you're, if you're arguing that the wall is a very bad investment, uh, and again, I am inclined to that view, uh, I think it's useful to compare it in how does that compare in magnitude to other good or bad investments that the government makes. And uh, uh, again, a, a good rough a good rough guide to that is that uh, the size of the wall in terms of the money it's going to take out of taxpayers' pockets is roughly equal to what we spend on supporting the arts and the humanities. Which we don't usually think about it in those terms, or I say I don't, and, I, and when I talk to people, that's not usually part of the argument. Um, okay, so that's just an example of... of Thinking about, I guess, thinking about economics in a different way in regard to the wall. Uh, but you say the, your book is not political. This is some, obviously, this is political. There is a political element to that. So let's talk about the book and let's talk about economics and how we can understand it better using puzzles. Uh, because it, it, I mean, because you tell us, I guess, at the end of the book, or maybe it's in the preface, I guess, well, once we learn how to do this and approach top economics and math and philosophy in a way that, that you describe in the book, maybe, well, we may be, or we may be smarter than Google, but probably not. <laughs> well, uh, let, uh, may I give you an example? Uh, yes, uh, examples are good. 
let's take a, a non-political example of trying to explain apparently strange behavior. Uh, there are many places in the world, many cultures, where uh, we know uh, quite unequivocally from data and from talking to people that uh, the majority of uh, parents would rather have sons than daughters. Uh, this is this is common in many cultures, in many times, and um, uh, whatever you may think of it, it's it's there in the data. Uh, and yet, in those same places. If you look at the requests that the adoption agencies get, people consistently request girls, not boys, at the adoption agencies overwhelmingly. Now, uh, the puzzle then is how do you explain that? In a country, in a place where people would prefer to have boys, why are they all going to the adoption agency and asking for girls? It looks a little mysterious. And the whole point of the book is that mysterious behavior is a lot easier to understand when you stop and think about the incentives that people are facing. What's going on in those countries is that because people in general have such a strong preference for boys, they will sometimes give up girls for adoption, even when there is no problem, when she's perfectly healthy, perfectly well-behaved, She'll get put up for adoption even though she's a great kid. Uh, boys, on the other hand, even when uh, uh, they've got... Uh, the, the parents will hang on to the boys and will, they will end up in the adoption agencies. They'll end up at the adoption agencies only when there's really something wrong with that boy. Not always, of course. I mean, sometimes the parents are in an auto accident and the boy ends up in an adoption agency. But... By and large, on average, the boys are ending up in those adoption agencies because the parents absolutely could not handle them. They were uh, 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 terrible behavior problems, terrible health problems. The girls are often in those adoption agencies because they're great kids, but the parents didn't want a girl. And if you go to an adoption agency and you, even if you prefer a boy, if you also care about getting a kid who's going to be healthy and happy and well-behaved, uh, your odds are much better if you override your own preferences and take a girl. Uh, and again, if you look at it from the point of view of the adoptive parent, even if the adoptive parent prefers a son, the adoptive parent is saying, but if it's a boy in an adoption agency, somebody sent that boy here, probably there's something really wrong with him. It, it makes it makes the behavior a little easier to understand, and uh, that's a. I, I don't know if that's, that's the a, only example because I have thought about that, but I had a different. It's interesting. I, I, I thought about it in a different way. The reason that people that in general in those countries where and most countries where boys are preferable. Um, well, I think you're saying two things. One is maybe there are more girls available because they give them up for adoption more readily. But the second piece, I always felt that when people are adopting, they, uh, girls are more compliant. And I'm just, in, in their mind, a girl is m- maybe more compliant, maybe somebody they can control more. And since it isn't their own biological child, it would be easier to have a girl than a boy. I, I don't, that would be something, sure. that's something, and, yeah. And- I, I'm sure that's part of it too, and uh, you know the uh, as I say in the book, uh, I do not know that uh, the answers that I'm giving to these questions are the right answers, and in most cases, I know that they're not the only possible good answers. What I do hope to do in the book is uh, first of all, to point to a lot of answers that sound right but are abs- 
but are definitely not right and explain why they're not right. And then to offer some some answers that look to me like they could be right, explain how you go through the process of coming up with answers like this and encourage readers and encourage people like you to uh, use those skills to come up with uh, other alternative answers. And if you've got better answers, for goodness sake, email them to me. I'm, I'm sure in many cases my, my readers will come up with answers that are just as good as mine. Yeah, well, it's fascinating. Let's, let's take some more examples because I think this is the best way to explain the book and to really kind of tease people. They're going to want to read more, obviously, So uh, because these are examples of how you can outsmart an economist, right? So um, give us some more okay. examples. Let's work with some other sure. ones. Yeah. Here's another. Um, I, I'm a college teacher, and at the end of every semester, my students fill out these forms where they say how they liked me as a teacher, and every college teacher in, in the United States and probably in many countries around the world faces the same thing. Every semester, our students evaluate us. One thing you see in the data uh, from those evaluations is that physically beautiful teachers, teachers who have been rated as physically beautiful in, in surveys where people look at pictures and so on, consistently get much higher evaluations than their more average-looking colleagues. And so the puzzle I pose is how do you explain that? The obvious answer is that students are very shallow and they are swayed by things like physical beauty that have no bearing actually on the quality of the teaching. Uh, But there's a deeper answer. There's an answer, if you look a little bit beyond the obvious, it's actually probably the case. It probably is true that the more beautiful teachers are better teachers. And here's why. Beautiful, t- beautiful people have a lot of job opportunities that other people don't have. They can be models, they can be actors, but beyond that, they can be in sales, anything that involves dealing with the public. Beauty is an asset. And so a very beautiful person who chose to become a teacher, on average, is a person who turned down a lot of other opportunities in order to teach. That's going to be, again, on average, a person who loves teaching, and a person who loves teaching is going to be a better teacher. Uh, By contrast, uh, those of us who are more ordinary-looking maybe, on average, are more likely to have become teachers because we just didn't have a lot of other good options available to us. And people who chose teaching for that reason are typically not going to be quite as good. So, uh, as I say in the book, if you can show me a lighthouse keeper with uh, movie star good looks, I will probably show you the world's best lighthouse keeper because anybody who (laughs) gave up a career in Hollywood to keep a lighthouse is somebody who is really dedicated to lighthouses. And uh, in general, uh, in in any career where beauty is not particularly an asset, uh, we would expect the most beautiful people to be the best at that because they're the people who have turned down the the most... uh, uh, alternative options in order to in order to do that. It's, it again goes a little bit beyond the obvious. Does explain what we see in the data. Might or might not be the full story, but it's uh, I propose it as a way to get my readers started thinking about things like this. Yeah, it's a great way to think of things. Obviously, in a new way. Is and as you're talking, I'm thinking maybe the most unattractive teacher who got the best position at the school really had to work hard because not only I mean they may were unattractive and unappealing, and yet their credentials, all things being equal, they may be a super person. I'm just kind of trying to mm-hmm. look at the other side, right? No, um, I, I think it's great that you're doing That's exactly what I want my readers to do, is, is 
take my answer and run with it and see if you can come up with something better or see if you can modify it, see if you can find uh, uh, a better way to explain these things. But uh, the, uh, the main message is don't settle for the first thing that comes into your head. If the first thing that comes into your head is that the students are being stupid or the students are being shallow, look a little deeper. Uh, if, if you see behavior that doesn't seem to make sense, Take it on faith, at least as a starting point, that the people you are observing are a little more sensible than you're giving them credit for and try to figure out what's really going on. Yeah, I think what it, and I think you probably heard this. Um, it's not a new um, I guess it's not a new state statement, but that most of our presidents are always tall, that tall men usually win the presidency and overwhelmingly. And I don't know exactly what the statistics are. Um, height height pays yeah. off enormously, not just in politics, also in the workplace. Uh, an extra inch of height, on average, is good for an extra thousand dollars a year in wages uh, for both men and women. Uh, if you if you compare people with identical credentials, identical education. Uh, the one who's an inch taller typically earns about $1,000 a year more. The one who's six inches taller typically earns about $6,000 a year more. Now, um, what's the explanation for that? You might say that tall people are intimidating. You might say that tall people are, uh, are, uh, uh, they, they command respect somehow, that, it, that people respond to them in a different way than they respond to shorter people. Uh, none of those explanations, it turns out, can be correct. And the way we know that's not correct is that you can look at people who had their growth spurts at unusual times, and you discover that tall people who were very short in high school earn like short people. And short people who were very tall for their age in middle school earn like tall people. Uh, now, uh, the so your wages do not depend actually on your current height they depend on your height at age 11 12 13 and that can't be a matter of how people look at you and respect you because when they look at you they don't know how tall you were at 11 12 13 instead the explanation has to have to do with the way people learn to think of themselves back in middle school back in high school uh the uh, and it was a very clever. A couple professors at uh, Princeton uh, worked through the data on this. It was a very clever way to do it. They uh, they said, look, there are two possible reasons why tall people might earn more. It might be because of the way people react to them, or it might be because of the way they've learned to think about themselves. How do we tell the difference? And then they got this great idea. Let's look at people whose height changed a lot uh, at an unusual time in life. See how they earn, and uh, you end up uh, uh, getting a real new insight into this. Well, taking that to the next step, then, this is a question I have for you. What about, do you think this is the reason or maybe one of the reasons why women are, have never, we've never had a woman president? Because I always maintain that women's voices keep them from, for whatever the reason, keep them from being or viewed as powerful people. I know this happens in the boardroom, the way they speak, the way they talk, and I'm really talking about the quality of their voice, not just the way in which they speak, whether it's tentative or not strong enough, but just high-pitched voices people tend not to want to accept as leaders, and that could be one of the reasons why women have had difficulty not just being president, but getting being elected, being elected as a senator or a representative, how does that fit in, or does it? 
Well, one, the, if I wanted to test that theory, uh, which I have not done, uh, I think the first thing I would try to do is get some data on women with similar backgrounds, similar education, similar uh, uh, training, uh, where there's a big difference in the pitch of their voices and see whether consistently the ones with uh, with with one sort of voice, maybe a deeper voice or a, uh, a less feminine voice, uh, earn differently from the uh, from the ones with the more traditional female voices. I don't know what those data would show, but that's the first place I would start looking. I think it's important. I think it's I think you should do that <laughs> because I think we have this election coming up and I think that is an issue in this election. I I I, do, I mean that's just my personal opinion, but I I sort of you hear know, some I, of the women yeah who are very reputable candidates starting to try and rather than using their own voice, are starting to try to talk like a man or sound like one, and it doesn't sound like one, and it really isn't, it isn't really who they are, and so it, it doesn't really reflect who they are. Their voice doesn't reflect who they are. I think there's something, well, you know, I, I don't know. I think that's a, that, that is an important issue in these campaigns. Anyway, go on. I interrupted I completely you. Agree with, I completely agree with you that somebody ought to look at the data on that. Uh, I'm not sure it should be me. Uh, there are other people who are better at looking at that particular kind of data than I am, but somebody should. It's a, it's a great point. All right, let's get back to the book because you have a lot of different examples as well. Um, one of the things, and, and I have this in front of me, it says from Chapter 4, Explanations. I guess that's the title, TV Shopping. Why doesn't Sony want its ads, want its TVs sold at a discount? Um, you know, I just, okay. bought a, I just bought a Sony TV, <laughs> and uh, Not I was discount, amazed though. to discover that no matter where I shop, it's the exact same price. I go to Best Buy, I go to a discount seller, I go online. Uh, the only place where the price is discounted, the only place where it's a little cheaper, is from some very questionable Internet sellers where it's clear from what else you read on the net that it's not clear they're ever going to actually deliver a television set. So the question is, why is everybody charging the exact same price? It turns out the answer to that is that Sony insists on it. Sony says, if you want to sell our television set, you want to sell this model television set, you got to charge exactly $3,000, and if you charge any less we're going to stop supplying television sets to you. Now, the question is, why does Sony care about the retail price of its television sets? The simple, obvious, but wrong answer is that Sony wants to keep up the price of television sets because they're in the business of selling television sets. That doesn't make sense by itself. And the reason it doesn't is that Sony doesn't care about the retail price of televisions. They care about the wholesale price of televisions. They sell to the, to the, they sell the television set to Best Buy for $2,000. Why should they care then whether Best Buy turns around and resells it to me at 3000 or 2500 or 3500 Sony completely controls the wholesale price. So why are they worrying about retail prices? It turns out that the answer is that here, and again, it's, it's a matter of looking just, just a little bit beyond the obvious. Here's what Sony cares about. If they allowed each retailer to set a separate price, then some buyers, and I would probably be one of these buyers, I would go into Best Buy, where they've got all the models on display, and I would spend a couple of hours looking at all the different models, talking to the staff, asking them about the advantages of this one, the advantages of that one, and so on. And after I got my education at Best Buy, I would go down the street to the discounter and buy the same television set for $300 less. 
The result of that, if there are enough people like me, is that Best Buy stops carrying Sony television sets because the uh, people shopping for them are coming in and taking so much time from their staff members and never buying from them. Uh, Sony cares about that. If, if uh, they, they want to keep Best Buy happy so that Best Buy will continue to sell the television sets, in order to do that, they've got to prohibit other people from undercutting them on the retail price. So the goal is not directly to put more money in Sony's pocket. The goal is to make the stores willing to provide customer service because um, uh, if, uh, if, if the, again, if the discounters are out there, Best Buy is not going to will, is not going to provide me the same quality customer service if they if they suspect that I'm free riding on their customer service and then going down the street to buy from somebody else. They're trying to keep the quality of customer service up. It actually ends up it does keep the price of televisions up, but it also greatly improves the quality of customer service and uh, a little bit of economic theory, a little bit more than we could probably uh, explain on the phone uh, actually ends up revealing that almost surely the quality of the additional customer service that customers get is, is well worth it for the, uh, for the uh, bit of extra money that they're paying. That's a great example. I mean, that, cause that's something that we, all of us, I, I would say all of us, uh, you know, are buying television sets or going to retail stores just as you're describing it. And I never thought about, never realized that that was the reason. I had no idea. So these are great. This, I mean, your book is really, it is fun. It's fun doing this with you. We only have three minutes left. So do we want to have one more example or, uh, obviously I want you to be able to tell us where we can uh, go online to buy your book, read your blog. Um, give us one short other example that's in the book. Here's too. a real quick example okay. uh, where the biologists have gone ahead and done the experiment for us. You put a big, strong pig and a tiny little weak pig in a box together. You make them compete for food. Who eats better? The obvious answer is the strong pig eats better. Turns out exactly the opposite is true because the box is set up so that you have to push a lever at one end of the box in order for the bowl at the other end of the box to fill up with food. And what happens is uh, if the weak pig pushes the lever, the strong pig waits by the bowl, eats all the food, the weak pig quickly figures that out and realizes there's no point in bothering to push the lever, so nobody eats. But if the strong pig pushes the lever, the weak pig waits by the bowl, eats almost all the food, but not quite, because the strong pig, after having pushed the lever, comes running the length of the box, knocks the weak pig out of the way, and gets the last 15% or so of the food that the weak pig didn't have time to eat. That's just enough of an incentive to keep the big pig pushing the lever. The little pig has no incentive to push the lever because he can't push the big pig out of the way to get at the food. The big pig has an incentive to push the lever because he can push the little pig out of the way. But the result of that is that he pushes the lever, the little pig eats most of the food, the big pig pushes him out of the way, the little pig gets big, and the big pig over time gets small. That's exactly what economic theory would predict, and the biologists have done us the favor of going ahead and doing the experiment. The pigs behave exactly as we would expect them to. Great example. That's a great one to leave it on. Okay, 30 seconds left. Um, 30 seconds left. My yes. uh, go to outsmartaneconomist.com, outsmartaneconomist.com, all one word. And uh, uh, you'll be able there to read the first chapter of the book for free. So you can figure out uh, for free whether this is the book for you or not. Outsmartaneconomist.com. 
Uh, you can read the first chapter, you can read some reviews, you can get an idea of uh, what the book is about, and you can also find links to my blog, etc. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show, Stephen E. Landsberg, Ph.D. Great to have you. Thank you. You were great. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author Stephen Nash, uh, visiting senior research scholar, and his new book is Grand Canyon for Sale, Public Lands versus Private Interests in the Era of Climate Change. February 26, 2019 marks the 100th anniversary of the establishment of Grand Canyon National Park. This and other national parks, forests, wildlife refugees, refuges, monuments, and wildernesses are in danger. Using on-the-ground reporting as well as scientific research, Stephen Nash shows how industrial exploitation and accelerating climate change will dislocate wildlife populations and vegetation across hundreds of thousands of square miles of publicly owned national landscape, threatening their survival. He's a visiting uh, senior research scholar at the University of Richmond who has taught in the Journalism and Environmental Studies program. He's written on science and the environment for the Washington Post, the New York Times, The Scientist, The New Republic, and many more. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Nice to have you here. Thanks for the opportunity, Catherine. Well, I, obviously I knew I was going to be interviewing you today, and then I have my CNN update in the morning, and the first thing that I see is that the first mammal has in as a result of climate change in Australia, is now an extinction, which kind of goes along with what your book and what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I'm afraid we're going to see a lot more of that. Yeah. So, and we're going to see a lot more of that, obviously, here in the United, around the world, but here in the United States, and we're specifically today going to be talking about uh, your book and public lands versus private interests in the area of uh, climate change. So, where do we begin? I mean, it seems to me that just from a layman's point of view, no one seems to be really doing anything about it or really getting upset about it. I mean, scientists have been telling us this for, what, 20 years, at least 30 years, that the public's been aware, and yet nothing's being done or very little's being done. 
I think things are changing, Catherine, and, you know, climate change is uh, not a cheerful subject. If, if you're like me, it, <laughs> just looking at it squarely makes you want to retreat rather than engage. Maybe that's what's been keeping some of us uh, away from the conversation for a while. Perfectly understandable, but there was a poll two weeks ago uh, that found that now more than 70% of Americans of both parties say they are really seriously concerned about the impact of climate change. So I, I think we're getting there. And pretty soon, it won't be long until any politician who, who pretends that this isn't happening is going to be laughed off the public stage. Okay, so the second part of that, or the first part is, what, what do we do? As private citizens, uh, what do well, we do? You know, uh, it, uh, we hear a lot of complaints about the, the Internet these days, but one of the blessings of the Internet is that it takes no time at all, almost literally no time at all, to find ways to engage. So uh, when we're done talking this morning, any of your listeners can get online and in a fraction of a second find dozens of different groups that are working on all of these problems and really making a difference. So it's easy for us. Are we doing that, let's say, prior to our interview? Do you see that? Do you see the impact of people using the Internet? <laughs> yes, I do. Um, I, I, I do see it. And I see it not only among environmental groups that are traditionally responsible uh, for you know, good stewardship of our natural resources. I also see it uh, among more and more scientists who are increasingly uh, concerned about the conversation. But... Uh, more, more than all of those groups put together, I see many more people who haven't been concerned previously finding ways to get involved, ways beyond just voting every couple of years and ways beyond even just writing your congressman. Those are extremely important, but there are lots of other ways to get something done about climate change. And I don't mean on an individual level. That's important. I mean on a collective level. Let's talk about our park system. Of course, that's what the book is about as well. Um, how it affects, I mean, because millions, hundreds of millions of us over the years go to the, our public, uh, to our national parks, right? And, and, and we don't think about it or we haven't thought about it. So, I think we've, how, uh, yeah. we've, we've been really, um, We've been really extremely fortunate that our great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents kind of fought this battle over public lands a hundred years ago. That's how we got our national forests and national parks and national monuments, all this fantastic portfolio of uh, public lands and all of the natural life and the wildlife um, in those public lands. They made that fight. They made it good. I'm afraid that we're going to have to fight to, to protect them again, especially because of climate change. Um, it would be uh, a, a wonderful thing if everybody was more aware of this beautiful opportunity. A million square miles of our American landscape is in our public hands. We, we own the stuff. If we can connect it and protect it, there will be some place for all of those plants and animals to migrate to as the heat and the drought build. The problem is uh, there's a very well-financed and very powerful political movement in the other direction, and instead of connecting and protecting those public lands, they want to bust them up and sell them off to private interests. And is their objective simply about the money, simply about the economics? Well, I think there's also a belief system behind it, but, you know, it's funny how belief systems and uh, your wallet uh, 
go together sometimes. The current administration has sponsored the largest rollback of federal land protection in our national history. Um, logging is scheduled to jump by 30% on public lands. Oil and gas leases have tripled. The uh, new nominee for to head up the Department of the Interior is a, a former oil lobbyist. I think the picture is pretty plain. Uh, there's a huge connection between money, campaign financing, and it's bad effects on our political system and busting up public lands that we're all the owners of, but they're going to be taken away from us if we don't fight hard. And what we're fighting against, what is what is the, besides, okay, well, we, we can say perhaps that the, the other side um, has strictly an economic interest, but what are they saying to try and convince people that that's a good thing as opposed to preserving the lands is what we're talking about? Well, you mentioned all of the folks who have visited the national parks, um, 300 million of them last year. That has an enormous economic impact uh, nationally. Just in Grand Canyon alone, more than 6 million visitors last year. Um, All of us who go to these wonderful public lands and national parks to enjoy them, we bring our money uh, and our economic influence with them and a whole lot of jobs The argument on the other side is, yes, we have to have more coal mining, more oil and gas drilling, more logging on public land, uh, because it's good for the economy. Well, um, more fossil fuel dependence is not only not good for the economy, it's definitely not good for the climate, and we're beginning to see the impacts of that already. Yes, some jobs are created, but they are short-term jobs, protecting our natural environment is uh, the, also gives us an immediate return, but of course the long-range return is we don't ruin a million square miles of public land. How, I guess there's two questions. So in, in terms of climate change specifically, how are our national parks being ruined? What is happening I mean, right now? What, well, what is the condition? Yeah. Um, The easiest way to explain this is to visualize a map that was drawn up for me by a couple of climate physicists, um, Catherine Hayhoe and Sharmista Swain at Texas Tech University. I asked them, could you please tell me what's going to be happening to um, a selection of national parks, given what we know about climate change, if it proceeds on the track that it's already on? And let's take Yellowstone National Park. It's tucked way up in the northwest corner of Wyoming. In the next 50 years, Yellowstone's climate is going to move south several hundred miles to the equivalent of the climate as it has been in northern Utah. Imagine Yellowstone National Park sliding down to northern Utah and by the end of the century to southern Utah. Grand Canyon's climate is going to move down to what has been the climate on the Mexican border. Yellowstone, or excuse me, Yosemite National Park there in the highlands of uh, the Sierras of California, going to move down to the Mexican border in terms of climate. That's the kind of change we can look forward to, given the amount of emissions we've put up into the atmosphere. Luckily, we have this opportunity that all of the natural systems of, of those beautiful places have at least 
a chance of better survival odds if we keep public lands open and there's some place for those plants and animals to go. Have we gone too far? Um, well, that's the question. Have we reached the breaking point? I mean, have, and have we haven't done anything? We haven't, I mean, we've just, is it, have we gone too far? You know, there's a, there's <laughs> always a temptation when you're in trouble. Uh, and we are in trouble. We have gone too far. But there's always a temptation to look back and assign some blame. Well, who did what and who should have, who should have made better decisions and who should have stopped listening to the money talking in their ear. But there's not profit in that. Maybe, maybe there's a smidgen of learning to be had, but looking forward, I think, is the better thing to do now. We have our values intact. Uh, Republicans, Democrats, we all agree that protecting national parks and natural systems on public lands are a good idea. So looking, looking forward, it's pretty plain what we need to do. We need to connect and protect those public lands and, in effect, uh, turn them all into something like a big national park um, instead of breaking them up and selling them off piecemeal to to private interests. Yeah, we've gone too far. Um, the climate change that we're looking at is kind of baked in. But the sooner we stop putting these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, the less, the more benign that impact will be. We're already seeing national forests burn up um, at unprecedented rates, partly from climate change. We're already seeing floods and droughts and sea level rise. Um, but it doesn't mean that we can't have a really good impact making good decisions starting right away. Are there, and I guess I'm not asking you necessarily personally or as an individual, but are now we're, you know, political candidates are getting on board. Are there any that you see that have an agenda so far that are ta talking about in a very specific way what we're talking about today and have any kinds of solutions or proposed solutions? Well, I'm, I'm like, um, I, I bet, uh, like you, Catherine, and most of your listeners, I'm, I'm going to wait for a while before thinking about who's the best candidate. Um, uh, I can say that, uh, that among the Democrats, there's a, a field of candidates that seems to grow every day, and climate change um, is uh, very near the top of the list of several of them. There's this thing, well, which so far uh, hasn't quite taken shape, but it, it's, uh, it, it's a package of proposals called the Green New Deal, you may have heard of. And that's something to be examined closely and taken pretty seriously. It's going to be definitely a part of uh, the Democratic Party's debate as it sifts through all those different candidates. All right, so explain to us, what is the Green New Deal? The Green yes, New because Deal, that has come um, up, you're right. Yeah. With, without getting too far into the weeds, the Green New Deal is a package of proposals that... Um, that that are telling us to address climate change uh, and adapting, um, adapt, adopting new policies uh, so that we cut back on greenhouse gas emissions so that we stop promoting fossil fuel use. The wonderful thing about that kind of thinking, never mind the specifics of the Green New Deal, is that we stop pretending that this is an individual thing, that if we drive our cars less or recycle our cat food cans 
uh, or ride a bicycle more, that that's going to solve the problem. Those are good things to do, absolutely good things to do. But we got into this mess together, and we're only going to get out of it together. It takes real public spirit and collective action and kind of linking arms. That's the kind of thinking that the Green New Deal um, proposes. That's a good thing. Yeah, so it's public policy. I mean, as you, I mean, I think that's what you're saying, right? I mean, oh, yeah. you know, because yeah, I begin to think on an individual basis, I try to do the things that you described and other things, and then I get frustrated. Well, but is this really doing any good? Uh, you know, it, it is. It's, it's doing it's, some good, but you know, when we, uh, I don't know, when we, when we had to do other major national missions like uh, fighting World War II, we didn't say, well, you know, everybody for himself, well, if you feel like fighting World War II, you, you know, you can, you can take on Hitler by uh, doing these individual actions. It doesn't make sense. There are lots of things that we need government for. We need a well-run government that is making public-spirited decisions, uh, and uh, it's, it's government and public engagement that are going to um, help us a, a, adapt to climate change and do something about it so it doesn't get worse. Well, how do you, what, what do you think is going to happen? I, and I'm making the assumption uh, uh, we have two more years of a government that isn't well run. That's two, two years. That's a long time. Uh, what do you think the impact of that is going to be? Um, the, the impact of that, <laughs> I'm just laughing because it, uh, it, it, it's, it, it, I begin to sound like a street corner evangelist, um, <laughs> and I begin to stammer. Um, the, I think a lot of the impacts we've already uh, witnessed, we, in some cases we've already felt those impacts if we're looking at public land. But I think that there's a new situation in Congress. There's a new attitude of not only asking questions, but being able to follow through and get definite answers. I think the kind of rapacious uh, exploitation of public lands and the kind of really crazy denial of the impacts of climate change, I think that's not going to be nearly as easy to pull off for the coming two years. In other words, with our new Congress, we are going in the right direction. So it's not Thank as if you. we're that's, standing. That's yeah. a beautiful restatement of what I was trying to say. You're exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, no, but that's critical. That's that's important. Um, okay, let's get back to the book. What else have we not specifically talked about in the book that you want to emphasize? I mean, we've been obviously talking about the issues. Uh, are we missing anything that we really need to get out there? Uh, besides, everyone should get out and read the book. But Well, I've... I've I've made the case that whether you read the book or not, it's very easy these days to keep abreast of what's happening on public lands. The ones near you, uh, of course, may be of the most concern, but if you or your family have ever been to a, a national park, some far-flung place or across the country, you know that those places are to be cherished and to be protected not just against uh, whatever happens from climate change, but um, well, let's take Grand Canyon. It's my foreground example for the whole national park system. At Grand Canyon, uh, there's a little tiny place called Tucson. It's a little gateway town. It's always been there, a few hundred souls. Uh, but as 5 million people or 6 million people visit the park every year, that's a river of cash coming through that little town. Well, um, an Italian real estate outfit 
has bought some private parcels not far from the border of Grand Canyon. And what they want to do is put up an enormous commercial area. It would be uh, the equivalent of the third largest shopping mall in the United States. In other words, they're bringing Las Vegas and Phoenix to, uh, to the outskirts of Grand Canyon National Park. It's an example that I'm giving of real estate development that's occurring on the borders of all our national parks in a completely uncontrolled and often very harmful way. At Grand Canyon, it's not just the aesthetics. Uh, it's not just that that kind of stuff has no business being near our national parks. The problem is that they're going to need water for that. And, well, where is it going to come from? That's still being decided, but it may be decided that they're going to stick a big soda straw um, down into the subterranean water supplies that feed the natural life of Grand Canyon National Park. Um, we don't... We don't really know how that's going to turn out for the time being. That real estate development has been blocked, but it's a very thin kind of um, protection. Uranium mining around Grand Canyon, the same thing. The Trump administration is interested in opening up public lands near Grand Canyon National Park to uranium mining, and there's deep concern about uh, radioactive contamination. So without being too much of a blowhard about this, Catherine. (laughs) There are a lot of things to keep our eyes on. Um, It's not difficult to do, and it's not difficult to to get in the fight and do something about it. But private interests and public interests have always been um, pushing back and forth in our national history. And we owe a lot to um, capitalism and to entrepreneurship and to private enterprise, those are all good things. What we cannot do is upset the balance and let them take over entirely, uh, especially those public resources that we have to keep intact. I think one thing, Stephen, that's difficult is that a lot of these real estate deals um, we don't learn about until things have gone a little bit further than maybe they should have. You know, these, these deals aren't transparent initially. So those on the other side are trying to protect the land are always are on the defensive rather than starting out with the information in the beginning. And I think, yeah. That's a very insightful comment. Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take issue with it, but only in part. There is a lot about these kinds of transactions, um, real estate, mining, uh, fossil fuel development um, on or near public lands that isn't transparent. But here's, here's where I want to push back a little. I think a lot of it actually is available to us if we're paying attention. Uh, there are a lot more fun things to do in life than pay attention to these issues of public policy. Uh, except that you wind up at, at the end of things uh, being surprised by um, ugly developments uh, on or near our national parks or someplace else. The things that I'm describing, if we had wanted to know about them, they were on the public record and they were being covered in the news media um, not as early as we'd like, but pretty early in the game, early enough that an aroused public can do something about them. It isn't hidden from view yet uh, the way it might be in, I don't know, some place like Turkey or Romania or Uruguay. Uh, it's there to find out about. So if you're one of those people who plan to take your family to the national parks, one of the 300 million visitors of the Grand Canyon, so it really behooves you to know what's happening 
at the what's happening at the land what's happening with the land at the Grand Canyon not just every year when you get in your van or however you get there and uh, really just make it sort of put that on your list that you need to really understand what is happening at all of these parks that you know we all enjoy um Sure. If you're going to Grand Canyon, for instance, there's a wonderful group, one of many, but it's really in the forefront, uh, called the Grand Canyon Trust. They do a hundred wonderful things on behalf not only of Grand Canyon, but the whole region around it. But the Grand Canyon Trust has a website, uh, very easy to find, and they are constantly posing news items that you and your kids, if you're going there, uh, can learn about some of the political conversations about what's happening at Grand Canyon, what some of these threats and what some of these opportunities are. And that's true for um, every national park there is. There are always groups that are out there trying to help protect this legacy. So I guess we have to begin to change the, the narration, don't we? In, in terms I think of we what, do. Yeah. I, I, I think that's uh, an, an excellent way to put it. And, and we're, we're all extremely busy keeping our boats afloat. Uh, but maybe um, if we begin to think about public lands and climate change as more of a priority item and something we really can do something about, it's not like we just have to watch it on television and shrug. There are lots of ways to, to get in the game here. And um, it's, it's a good thing to do. It's urgent. Great. Well, this was a great interview, and I thank you. Um, you know, you're obviously very insightful. What websites uh, we can go to maybe specifically to find out, well, about your book? You, I assume you can buy it online, bookstores everywhere, um, or more information about you and what, and what you're doing. And the title of the book, again, is Grand Canyon for Sale, Public Lands versus Private Interests in the Era of Climate Change. Um, and we're talking to Stephen Nash. Luckily, the website name isn't as long-winded as the title of the book. It's just Grand Canyon. <laughs> it's a good for title. Sale. I like the title. Yeah, it explains good. it. Yeah, GrandCanyonForSale.com. Uh, you can download the first chapter if you want to. Uh, but whether you're interested in in a, a book or not, there's a lot of news there about public lands and uh, again about how to how to get connected to a very very important kind of movement to protect them. Great. Thanks for being on the show today, Stephen. Thanks for the opportunity, Catherine. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 